0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and I'm happy to welcome Dave Mason back today as a guest host. Dave will be talking to journalist Cheney Kwok about his debut book, The Passenger, How a Travel Writer Learned to Love Cruises and Other Lies from a Sinking Ship, which is published by David R. Godine. So, Chaney Kwok, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm hoping that you'll let us start with some summary of what this event was, leaving the spoilers entirely up to you to either divulge or not. But I'm hoping, I mean, I think readers need to have some sense of what in the world happens in this book. What is the Viking sky and what happened?
1: Yeah. So I was on a cruise ship on a magazine assignment, a travel magazine assignment, and the cruise ship, the Viking sky ended up having a catastrophic engine failure where all four of the engines shut down in the middle of a storm that happened to have some pretty crazy weather. So I've heard many different... Accounts read different articles, but you know, as high as 80 plus miles per hour wind, high waves, and it's not a good place to be when you don't have a working engine on your ship carrying 1373 people, especially if you're passing a notorious stretch of the Norwegian coast, the water is cold. The seabed is really rocky and the water's rough. So when the engine failed, the ship started charging straight towards land. And it turns out that because cruise ships are made to float, It can be actually deadly when you head towards solid ground. So we were about 100 yards away from capsizing against uh, rocky reefs before uh, we were able to turn around. But the whole ordeal took about 27 hours involving helicopter rescuers lifting people off the ship just in case, 20 people at a time. I was not one of the chosen ones because it would have taken 40 hours to airlift everybody. And after 27 hours, we were actually able to dock. But all things considered, I have to say I had it pretty easy. <laughs> I was inside this climate-controlled plush cruise ship being catered to by the staff who stayed up all night. And it was one of the most bizarre experiences. But I can't really uh, claim hardship because I was on a cruise ship room <laughs> two.
0: That's the event that inspires the book, Mm -hmm. but that's not really the whole story, is it? It really isn't. Yeah, the full
1: title of the book is The Passenger, How a Travel Writer Learned to Love Cruises and Other Lies from a Sinking Ship. It's a really long title for a short book that many readers have reached out to me to say that they read in one sitting. And the reason why there's a sinking ship in the title isn't because of the cruise ship, because, spoiler alert, while everybody can Google it, the ship does not actually sink nobody dies, which is why I was able to write a funny book, or I'd like to think that it's quite humorous. The sinking ship in the title refers to many other things happening in my life, but it becomes a very personal memoir. And I, I would argue that actually, perhaps the memoir itself isn't really about a particular cruise per se. It's really about being confined in, in a space without any control and re-examining your life. And it's something I think that every one of us went through last year during the pandemic when we were locked down in our apartments and houses and really had to do some hard thinking.
0: So you wrote the book during
1: quarantine. in Yeah. Quarantine. <laughs> well, so it's, it was kind of a crazy experience. I, the first draft was meant to be a magazine article, I thought. The assignment was canceled because the cruise ship ran into trouble. But then I started thinking, well, maybe this is something I, worth writing about. So I wrote this article. But during the quarantine, it actually more than tripled in word count and became about something else. You know, the, the experience that we all went through and shared crystallized what the experience really was, which is about drifting without direction for a while and having that kind of wake up call trying to change the course of my
0: life. You've got quite a bit of writing experience. Was writing in quarantine a different sort of experience? Yeah, it's a very different experience. You know,
1: I'm used to writing on the road because as a travel writer, writing for magazines like Travel and Leisure, oftentimes I end up filing my assignments while on the road. Not ideally, usually writing about a different destination while I'm on a different trip. But with this one, I was just really stuck in one place and that informed a kind of humor and I'd like to think also suspense in the book. I like a kind of a very specific genre of horror films, which is the kind without any blood, the kind that involves. Usually, someone who's kind of like Nicole Kidman, (laughs) stuck in a house, trapped, and trying to rescue their children or find their way out. It was a little bit like that. Last year was quite harrowing for a lot of us. And that informed the passenger in many ways, I think, because a lot of the action really does take place indoors on the ship that may or may not be sinking and without any kind of semblance of control, but we still had to find a way to forge our destiny, so to speak, however that form that took. And for me personally, it was about re-examining where my life was headed and realizing that instead of waiting for a rescue line from above, I had to jump ship. Luckily, I didn't have
0: to literally do that and jump into the water. Sorry, I'm kind of clinging to this notion about writing in quarantine. I I, mm-hmm. I do intend to talk about your book, but the process seems to me part of what you're concerned with in the book no it was um was writing in quarantine easier or harder than the writing that you had done prior yes <laughs> yes the answer
1: <laughs> it is easier in that I didn't have much distraction other than uh, the tiger king but harder in that there was a sense of desperation but also futility you know especially here in California I live in San Francisco and at one point the sky turned orange literally orange apocalyptic orange because there was a wildfire in Oregon and it just seemed like the world was coming to an end we couldn't go anywhere because of the pandemic i think there's a second spike happening it's hard to focus on writing a book when you think that perhaps this is the <laughs> this is the end of it all but you know i've been Trying to write for a very long time and I've been writing for magazines, and I've also had so many countless abandoned you know novels, like every other writer out there. And it enforced the idea that even if the world is ending, well, what is the point of it all? Anyway, I did want to write in the end. So that confirmed my hunch that maybe I this is what I do want to do, because part of what I examine in The Passenger is, well. What am I doing with my life? Is being a magazine writer what I really want to do? Should I be working for Twitter or something?
0: You know, that kind of ambivalence seems at least twofold in the book to me. I sensed your ambivalence about the direction that your life was heading. And it felt to me like that your articulation of that ambivalence was intended to parallel your ambivalence about being on the boat in the first place? I mean, prior to the storm, what's your relationship to travel writing and to cruises particularly? Yeah,
1: thank you for picking up on that. I think ambivalence really colors a lot of what I talk about in the book. Travel, I think, is wondrous. I don't think it needs any explanation. I think every one of us can agree. It's been the best education I've received, but at the same time, I think it comes at a cost, certainly environmental, but also personal and And also, there's a lot of marquee ethical questions as well, right? There's a lot of disparity in the world, and travel, in and of itself, as it's done now, really brings forth that kind of inequality in the world. Who gets to have the right to cross borders, right? Who gets to have the means to go to places? That's kind of a randomly bestowed privilege. And I say that as someone who has benefited from that privilege. And it's something that my parents really worked hard towards so that I could have that kind of privilege that they didn't have when they were growing up. I always like to say that traveling cheap costs a lot of money in that I was able to backpack around Europe in my 20s because of the initial investment that my parents made into my education and the kind of mindset that they gave me to be able to explore, not to mention that I didn't have a car payment to make back home, or I didn't have to, you know, take care of my parents financially. You know, we often think of those advantages as kind of normal, but it's not actually something that every one of us has. So when I say I'm ambivalent towards travel, I do think it's wonderful and I love it. And I also recognize that I've benefited unfairly from that ability and freedom of movement. And it's something I do think a lot about uh, in the book as well, because a cruise ship is such a weird microcosm of the world, right? Uh, You have that kind of built-in upstairs, downstairs dynamic. And it is literal, right? The most expensive suites go to the top, and the least paid workers go to the very bottom of the ship where they don't see any daylight, they're just greasing and laundering and working all day and all night, you bring this entire world of inequality into one place and float it in the middle of the sea. That's just such a bizarre concept to me. So to be confronted with that, it can be a really jarring thing. And fine, if you write a book that doesn't talk about that at all. You only talk about the glamorous part of cruising. That is a choice. That is a political choice
0: as much as it is to point those things out. And there's a point in the book you figure that you're not going to get to write about this, that the editors who sent you on the assignment are just going to kill this story altogether. Yeah. And so again, ambivalence about that part
1: of me was like, sure, that sounds right. Another part of me also thought, well, I should. Still try to sell this story to a different publication if it gets canceled. And then I felt immediately really dirty about it. (laughs) And also I just take a lot of notes. So I was taking a lot of notes at the time, but every few hours I would stop and
0: go, Why are you doing this? (laughs) You know. Can I pick at that one thing that you just said, just a little bit? You felt you felt dirty about possibly writing about this later on. Can, Can you expand on that? I think nonfiction writing has
1: casualties. Yeah, there are personal consequences too. There are people that I write about in that book who agreed to be in the book and willingly were interviewed, like the rescue workers. I never came into contact with them during the 27 hours. I tracked them down. It took me months, but I tracked down the one of the helicopter rescue workers, a tugboat operator. Those people did agree to talk to me and be interviewed on record. But then again, I also wrote about crew members who had no idea I was writing about them. And I, in fact, made a point of changing their names because I was afraid for their employment. And I know that oftentimes staff members are not allowed to talk to media. But so, you know, there are people in the book who I described faithfully from my point of view. And I make it very clear that this is my observation, but they weren't aware. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's how books work, right? You don't actually track down every single person that you include and get their approval because you don't get approvals for writing. There's fact-checking, which is important, ethically and journalistically. And then there's approval, which is an entirely different thing. And I didn't want to pander to people and, and ask them, "What well, do I make you look good? You know, is this acceptable? No, I, I mean, I made sure that I wrote Faithfully, from my point of view, but there might have been some personal casualties there, too, in terms of me writing about my family, for instance, I get very frank about my family
0: and my relationship as well. It seems to me there must have been a point at which you said, I'm not going to try to sell this to a magazine, Mm -hmm. but I am going to try to publish it. Even during the whole thing, I never thought this would be a book. It didn't become a book until the pandemic.
1: But yes I did think if I survive this this could be kind of an interesting article I can sell. I make fun of you know kind of like real the real-time viral nature of social media in the book quite a bit. There are a lot of Twitter spectators who uh, were making jokes slash spreading information slash spreading misinformation and we became, this reality TV spectacle, right? Because all this was unfurling before the world in real time as we, our fate was uncertain. And I don't think that I'm in any way ethically superior to, or morally superior to those people who are on social media chiming in. I'm just slower. <laughs> you know, it took me a couple of years to write this because it just became something very different, right? Without the pandemic, The Passenger of a book, Because it's very much about being confined and trying to change course of your life. I don't know
0: what this would have been without it, but certainly not a book, I don't think. So part of the motivation for publishing on this story Mm -hmm. was a commitment to articulate your own transformation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do hope that that resonates with people
1: some people. And I hope that the passenger finds its way to people who may need to read it. I've certainly come across books very randomly that helped me through some hard times. And even as I was taking notes, I thought maybe even if I never write an article, maybe some of this will help me heal someday. Because I was in a not a great place in life at the time. And I just had a hunch that what I was experiencing was extraordinary. And that by Leaving some sort of a chronicle for myself, I might actually be able to help myself heal, really. So how many cruises have you been on? I don't know. But right before the Norwegian cruise, I had been on a different cruise right before. So I was on two cruises back-to-back, which is not a normal thing to do. And I was in completely different time zones, and cruises are also designed that there are these 24-hour economies, right? they are all sorts of jet-lagged people walking around like zombies, and you lose a sense of reality in some ways because there's such bubbles, right? I was in Southeast Asia right before I got on the Norwegian cruise, and I was pampered. And then I flew over to the other side of the world for a different magazine assignment, and I was pampered yet again very different ways. And I totally see the value in cruises too. I mean, listen, I think, you know, for people with mobility issues, like there's no easier way to travel. And I also recognize that there are people out there who save up for a long time just to go on one of them. You know, I don't refute that. And it also provides such amazing opportunities, both educational and economic to people who do want to work on them which also colors my ambivalence, right? It's easy for me to say, oh gosh, all these disparities, it makes me so uncomfortable. I'm so sensitive to these issues. How can they make me so uncomfortable? But I have to also be realistic about it and say like, oh my gosh, this provides employment. This is building homes, you know, and sending kids to school by, you know, with the parents working on these ships uh, and working crazy hours and I should know something about that too you know my parents worked hard so that I could have this kind of very white colored profession of writing so ambivalence again
0: (laughs) is what I feel about that so what was the normal operating picture of this cruise before things moved south
1: For over a week, we were cruising up north past the Arctic Circle in search of the northern lights, which is what my magazine article was about. And I'm sure many people have been on them, but some may not have been. Cruises work in a way that, you know, you get on board, you get your own cabin, and then every morning or almost every morning you dock somewhere and hundreds of people basically get unleashed these unsuspecting towns or ports where they wait and get on tour buses and go somewhere and look at things and then come back exactly where they started and then float across a border of sorts and then go to the next port. So every day we are going to a different city and you get really accustomed to that kind of novelty when you're traveling, right? And in between, there's just an incredible amount of pampering happening right you want room service it's there like that you know midnight buffet sure like I can go there and eat whatever I want and there's a sauna on board and I mean humans are so odd don't you think because like (laughs) sure the ocean is like not our natural you know habitat yet we build these floating cities and say like oh let's just put a roller coaster on it. Why not put a couple of, you know, pools and buffets and just like let that float out there. And it's also pretty bizarre how quickly we get accustomed to those things, you know, Uh, after a couple of days, you think, of course, someone should clean after me. Why not? You know, of course, it's normal that I leave my cabin for a couple of hours and magically everything is sparkling. And it's the most mundane thing and also the most bizarre thing. It's the best way I can put it. There wasn't a roller coaster on this particular not this one. In general, I think I'm just really thrown off by like extravagant, large, you know, cruise ships with you know casinos and roller coasters. But no, not the Viking Sky. In some ways, I think I was quote unquote lucky to be in an incident on board a relatively small ship, you know. A little over 900 passengers, which is considered small, and mostly people who watch PBS because it advertises so heavily on PBS, and that worked in our advantage when you know one of the doors broke and the waves started hitting the ship really high, and you know we had <laughs> It's like North Atlantic water splashing around inside, and yet nobody trampled one another. So you know this is what you get for being on a cruise with people who are willing to
0: sit through pledge drives, the upside is that folks are not trampling each other, but the passenger list for this particular cruise was older, less mobile, perhaps less robust. How did that affect your experience of of this event? What really
1: overwhelmed me is the serendipity of the world, right? Like even though there was no casualty and because hundreds of people worked so hard to make sure that we were safe, we were safe. But the unfortunate fact of the matter is that if a wave had hit us in the wrong direction, or if we had been, you know, a few feet that way, we could have easily capsized, in which case, having passengers with mobility issues would have been (laughs) really catastrophic. In The Passenger, I also kind of geek out on brief history of lifeboat disasters and Lusitania in, uh, I think, 1915 or or so. The main issue wasn't that the German U-boats torpedoed the ship, which was the case, but actually people survived that attack. What happened was the lifeboats flipped when they were getting lowered, lifeboats sank, and that's where most of the casualties happened. I ended up geeking out quite a bit, after, you know, while writing this book. Because why not? It's the pandemic, right? And I read a, I think, a Smithsonian article that calculated, or maybe Quartz—I'm going to have to look back—but calculated that in order for a lifeboat deployment to be successful, they have to past how many people per minute or something like that. And I don't want to misquote it, but I remember looking at the number of seconds that you have to do that under. And I thought there was no way the passengers on my ship could have done that. We could barely walk down the stairs. But, you know, of course, like older doesn't mean necessarily mobility issues and vice versa. there are plenty of very active seniors there. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is they
0: could have been really bad. In fact, you just said we couldn't move down the stairs. This was quite challenging for you, and you're in pretty good shape. Well, we could have moved down in that
1: we were just so jam-packed, right? We were evacuating downstairs, and because we were just, uh, I guess, there are some people with mobility issues, and people get backed up. So we were standing in the stairwell for a long time. Same thing happened for those people who were handpicked to go get winched up into the helicopters and get airlifted. They had to spend hours waiting in the stairwells because they had to stand ready. And then when the helicopter came nearby, they were all winched up one by one. And uh, (laughs) they couldn't really afford having helicopters waiting. So they ended up having passengers wait for hours and hours waiting for their turn to get airlifted. So missed out on that though.
0: (laughs) are you a little sad to have missed the helicopter opportunity? Yes and no.
1: I'm a very nosy person. I'm curious, but I'm also thankful that I didn't have to because people who did do it, some people said that it was just really harrowing and cold.
0: (laughs) The particular people aside, what did this storm do to the ship? Cruise ships are meant to
1: withstand everything, right? So it's really chilling to see a baby grand piano that's been flipped upside down, Mm -hmm. to see treadmills that have been just thrown around and you know, 60 pound dumbbells that have been flung across the gym and shattered mirror. At the same time you see some pretty interesting bizarre things like, oh, like perfume bottles in the duty free store that are completely fine next to the bar where everything is shattered. It seemed almost random what gets spared. I thought that was also a metaphor for life in some ways, right? There are a lot of things that happen that we try to assign some sort of retroactive narratives to, right? Here's what happened and this is why. But actually, I think that most of what happens is just a series of random occurrences that have consequences and we try to assign some sort of a narrative afterwards. But you know, we all exist by just some sheer dumb luck, if you think about it. We beat crazy mathematical odds just by going from a, strain, a strand of genetic material to, like, baby, right? There's some crazy odds there. So maybe talking about serendipity and
0: randomness is actually the most ordinary thing, too. When was the point when you thought to yourself, oh, this is not just a storm, this is serious? The the engines went out
1: at about 2 p.m., but about an hour leading to that, it seemed like things just couldn't be normal because you know, when you see things flipping like beverage carts, when you hear like the whole kitchen getting shattered upstairs, when you see staff members who are visibly shaken and scared, you know that there's something wrong with it. But still, you know, we were just going on about our business because this is a cruise ship. Everybody has to has a role but then when the engines failed and the electricity went out at 2 p.m., that was the scariest moment, one of the scariest moments, because all of a sudden everything got super quiet. The heater stopped, the TV went out, and for that brief second when people stopped screaming, that was the most chilling moment of silence. So I uh, put my passport in my underwear because I wanted my body to be identified because I thought, well, maybe this is it because we were swaying so hard that it really felt like I was in a
0: building that was collapsing. Can you describe what that swaying is like? I mean, you've already characterized the cruise ship as the city that set out on the water. And, you Mm -hmm. know, those of us who know what cities are like, they just kind of sit there.
1: Great. Right. And I also live in, you know, one of the most earthquake prone places, but it's not like an earthquake because it just keeps going and going and going. Right. Uh, when you're swaying, you keep thinking, is this going to tip? Oh, no, we're not. We're going the other direction. And then are we going to tip this time? Oh, no, we're not. But each time you just never know. There's no guarantee. I wish I knew how to put it in a more elegant
0: way, but I was just really seasick. <laughs> <laughs> I think the book does a quite elegant job of describing it to your earlier query. I thought the book did, in fact, have some genuine humor and some genuine suspense in it, some quite dark humor, which I mean as a compliment. Yeah. Part of that dark humor seems to be wrapped up in the way that you talk about being alone. Can you say something about that? Because on, you're not alone. In this particular event, Mm -hmm. I mean, once you close up your room and join everybody, you're not alone at all. You're not. Like, I don't know how. 48 hours, maybe.
1: Yeah, you're not alone, but you're also alone. You're always alone. And when you're in a life or death situation, you realize that you've been alone all along. Maybe that's not a bad thing either. But again, going back to the pandemic, I happen to live in a studio by myself. So I experienced the lockdown for the most part alone. <laughs> you know, there's a very special kind of loneliness that you experience living alone in a crowded city. There are so many people in my building, so many people within a block radius of where I live. At the same time, I'm alone. It's not much different from being on a cruise ship that's going through a catastrophic engine failure, if you think about it. Because even if you're sharing that experience, ultimately you're by yourself and your fate is just yours and nobody else's. Having said that though, I think I came to realize that or cherish that too, that maybe this, that is the way I want to live. I was in a relationship when I got on this ship and much of the passenger is about actually re-examining that relationship, right? And I think a lot of what kept both of us in that relationship was inertia and the fear of being alone. But what if you've been all alone all along, then maybe there's less to be afraid of. But yeah, going back to the humor, thank you for finding the book funny. You know, when I mentioned that there's some casualties and collateral damage in writing nonfiction, I think it's only fair that you put yourself on the chopping block too. And if anything, you have to make yourself bear in ways that you couldn't possibly make other people. And so... Any kind of humor that's in The Passenger comes from that kind of honesty. And that's probably why it's a little dark too, because it's a double-edged sword, right? It's a funny, sad book, I'd like to think.
0: Cheney Kwok is the author of The Passenger, How a Travel Writer Learned to Love Cruises and Other Lies from a Sinking Ship, which is published by David R. Godin. Dave Mason was your guest host today. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk.
1: Thank you for joining us today Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted
0: by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.